Hi, uh, this is Dr. Len Calabrese, uh, and we're coming at you today with a live program uh, dealing with some of the complexities of COVID-19. Uh, I'm a professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine, and I'm so pleased to be able to do this uh, with a prominent famous epidemiologist, Kimmy Heyrich, um, who is consultant rheumatologist, Manchester Foundation Trust, and well published in this area. So I have kind of clinical, translational, epidemiologic kind of uh, perspective here to, to, to uh, go at it today. And I, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. So uh, welcome, Kimmy. Hello. Um, these are our disclosures. And this is kind of the housekeeping. So, you know, this isn't going to be fun unless we get a lot of uh, engagement uh, uh, with all of you. And uh, certainly there'll be a lot of uh, uncertainties and controversies. And um, so we'd, we'd really appreciate it if you would uh, use the Q&A um, box to uh, enter your questions. We'll try to sift through them as best as we can. And uh, we'll go from there. Uh, after my initial presentation, I'll just take like five minutes to answer a few questions. And then after Kimmy's done, um, uh, we'll open it up to a kind of a more general roundtable, and we'll interact with each other and answer your questions uh, from her section as well as uh, just kind of high-level stuff. This is how it's going to go. Um, we're going to. Uh, 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 talk a bit about the uh, uh, current status of uh, treatment recommendations, at least from ACR. I'll, I'll embellish a little bit from ULAR, question and answer, registries, panel discussion, and we'll be um, uh, done in uh, uh, one hour. So um, let's uh, kind of go to it. Uh, We've divided this into a clinical and kind of epidemiologic section. And the first part is, you know, uh, how do we manage patients with IMIDs um, in this current era? And um, <clears throat> this is a work in progress. And there are guidelines on each side of the, uh, of the Atlantic, um, ACR and ULAR. They're more similar than different. Um, they have been uh, promulgated since the spring and periodically updated. You know, my own personal perspective of this is that these are perpetually outdated. And, um, uh, you know, the, the pace of, of uh, publications, uh, uh, as, as all of you recognize, is so torrid. Um, that none of us can really keep up with this. I, I, I have a little exercise that I do a couple times a month um, where I go log into PubMed and uh, uh, MedRxIV, and I just look at the current numbers. You know, as of, uh, you know, February of last year, you could count these articles on COVID-19 on your fingers and toes. And as of February 1st this year, we had topped 100,000 uh, publications there. So all of us are 
are just kind of, you know, desperately trying to get glimpses. Um, and it has um, disrupted uh, the orderly flow of uh, science. Um, there is uh, the literature that has come out, uh, as I've just described, much of it is not peer reviewed yet. And then there's what we refer to now as the gray literature. And the gray literature is, uh, you know, many high impact publications that are being released by press release. Um, and it often takes, you know, many weeks, if not longer, to actually see the data. So we're all just kind of, you know, interpreting things uh, on the fly. So it, with those caveats, uh, let me uh, make a few comments. So each of the guidelines, um, uh, these are not recommendations uh, from ACR and ULAR and virtually all other countries, um, divide uh, the clinical scenarios in which we're seeing patients um, into these kind of aliquots. Um, and uh, they counsel us on what we should be doing uh, with our therapeutics. And actually, th th this might actually have worked out better uh, uh, doing the epi first, because uh, we've learned so much about the actual risks uh, that are attended uh, by therapies. But, you know, um, uh, uh, it, it is what it is. And I'm going to, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of highlight the things that I have the most difficulty with right now. So um, we know that in the era of COVID, we manage patients differently. We do virtual visits. Patients have issued their visit, visits and we have data to document that. Um, so care may be, uh, you know, suboptimal. We often hear from patients um, uh, only in times of crisis. So the first scenario is, you know, what about patients who do not have COVID and do not have high risk exposures and they're stable. Do we manage these people any differently now than what we have in the uh, pre-COVID era? And, and by and large, um, uh, the answer to that is no. Uh, it is uh, for good reasons, and we'll, we'll hear a little bit of this later, I'm, I'm confident. Um, it's better to have a well-controlled uh, immune-mediated inflammatory disease um, uh, going into the potential risk of acquiring COVID than to having an active disease. And the best way to have an active disease is stop taking medications. Um, uh, 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 so uh, this is kind of a, uh, an easy uh, kick at the ball. There are a few things that we kind of think about in terms of infusions. You know, drugs like uh, denosumab, we want to make sure that we uh, have things scheduled to, to come in at the appropriate times, and um, uh, uh, we leave well enough alone. The second uh, issue would be, what if we see new patients um, during this era, which we do, um, and now we're making proactive decisions moving forward, and uh, patients uh, in our ongoing um, clinics who now have active disease. Now we have to start thinking about, you know, making changes. Well, here are some of the drug categories where comments have been made. Well, first of all, our goal is to control this disease. Like I said, that is a risk factor for uh, severe outcomes. And, you know, the use of um, 
uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, um, uh, while this, these drugs have been debunked as either preventative or uh, modulatory in the presence of COVID-19, they are still uh, uh, you know, drugs that uh, we uh, uh, should and can uh, use. IL-6 inhibitors, I'll make some comments on this later. We, we've gone up and down 13 times of whether they're good or bad or good or bad. And um, uh, 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 there is really no major preferential reason to use an IL-6 inhibitor over other um, targeted therapies, uh, but clearly they are uh, uh, sanctioned to be used. Um, conventional synthetic DMARDs, um, uh, 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 can be used to control disease, uh, monitoring as we usually do. And uh, the, the panel has noted uh, some reservations about JAK inhibitors, and probably because uh, we recognize that uh, JAK1, TIC2 uh, inhibition uh, does affect interferon, and could that mean something? But now we have emergency use authorization of paracetinib in patients with uh, uh, advancing disease. So um, even there, um, I think it is fine. Glucocorticoids, uh, we are always cautious about glucocorticoids, and as we'll hear later uh, across uh, many registries, um, use of uh, doses that we would consider beyond low dose um, uh, may have attendant risk. So we try to, to even uh, be more parsimonious in our use of them than we usually are. And I, I think that that's uh, prudent. Now, what about exposure? You know, I've been around, you know, I've been exposed to COVID-19. Well, what does that mean? We're all exposed to COVID-19 in this world. Um, there are actually some definitions of this. You know, have you been in the presence of someone who's been documented to have this disease? Has there been a prolonged exposure, you know, greater than 15 minutes? Have you breached social distancing? Have you not had a mask on? Have they not had a mask on? And you can kind of create some gradations. A high-risk exposure without mask, uh, prolonged um, I think that this is something where, you know, we, we need to stop and pause. And whether we should stop all immunosuppressants and, and uh, particularly should, is there any need to stop uh, hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine? I don't think so. Um, uh, the, the only reason that it's been discussed is because of risk, of risk of toxicity and those doses that have been used in the COVID trials are dramatically more than what we are used to. So I, I don't really have an issue with this. Other immunosuppressants, particularly those with uh, half-lives that we can do something about, I would hold until we know. As you know, an immediate exposure is gonna take four to five days before a patient can be testable. Um, uh, so this is a, a prudent course of action. The other thing that I disagree with is, is that if you had a patient on sulfasalazine, I would stop this drug. It's a puny immunomodulatory drug, and there are at least two databases out there that have given some cautionary nod to this. And I'm going to ask uh, Kimmy some questions about this as we go into later. What about presumptive COVID-19 uh, uh, infection? Um, uh, uh, and this is this is presumptive, like you know, you've had a really high risk exposure, and you're probably going to get it, or you've been documented to have it. Well, here, this now is a serious infection, serious infection. And if you read the package insert from any of the drugs that we're on, I hold everything that I can. And it's not glucocorticoids, um, which may be uh, required as ongoing uh, therapy. Um, 
but these drugs, uh, you know, uh, uh, should all be uh, held. Questions now coming up. Well, I'm on baricitinib. Baricitinib has EUA authorization. Should I maintain this? Um, as we can talk about later, it's really only uh, 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 indicated under the EUA for people on higher levels of the ordinal scale who are hypoxic. So uh, that, you know, you're, you're, you're in uncharted territory using JAK inhibitors early. And then this kind of wink and a nod that IL-6 inhibitors are okay early. Um, uh, again, uh, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and uh, I'm gonna ask Kimmy more about what we know about people on baseline targeted therapies from which we base these recommendations. And that has changed up and down over a period of time. The last thing I'll talk about is, all right, so patient has had COVID-19. Um, I'm, uh, uh, we hope that the outcome is good. Um, um, they fall into several camps. The patients had asymptomatic COVID-19, mild COVID-19, or hospitalized COVID-19. And within the hospital, have they been hypoxic or in the unit or, or beyond? Now, when do I start my medications? That's a great, great question. And you know, most of us have uh, moved out of the uh, retesting strategy for um, re-entering this because we know that uh, PCRs can stay uh, positive for many weeks to uh, several months. And uh, we usually use the kind of uh, 14 to 21 day uh, after recovery to uh, reinstitute uh, immunomodulatory therapy. Um, there are anecdotes in the literature, particularly people who have had blistering immunosuppression, that they can shed viable virus for months. So that is that, those are the exceptions. You know, you had a patient with on remission on you know methotrexate and uh, hydroxychloroquine and low dose prednisone. When can I start methotrexate and hydroxychloroquine? You know, I it, it's a shared and informed decision. Was the patient uh, uh, with well-controlled rheumatoid arthritis in remission, non-erosive, and they're still feeling great in two weeks. Well, why don't you wait another week or two? I, I'm totally sanguine with that approach. You know, I am now miserable. I cannot move. I can't function in life because I am flaring. Okay, let's work together and let's restart something. So there's a lot of common sense to this. I, 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 and that's the way that these things are actually designed. Now, finally, a couple comments. Uh, on a few special drugs, this is a this is the the IL six is like the zombie that keeps coming from the grave. It's it's good, it's bad. It's good, it's bad, and now it's back. So um, you know we've just seen uh, the um, uh, the recovery trial, um, uh, most recent data. This has followed uh, another positive trial, the uh, remap cap study uh, on top of, uh, you know, if, uh, all you have to do is uh, look at this uh, forest plot and you see that a lot of these um, are uh, trivial effect sizes. But now um, uh, with the power of recovery, um, we can see that the, there is a, a, a growing evidence of, that this, uh, class of drugs may be helpful. But, uh, you know, the devil is in the details. 
Um, and these are for people uh, with higher, uh, much higher on the ordinal scale, um, uh, uh, people re requiring, you know, significant oxygen and support. And REMET-CAP uh, actually had uh, end organ failure. Um, this is not translated to, I'm on IL-6 and I just had an exposure. These are different parts of the equation. So I'll be interested to uh, 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 talk about some discussion there. But IL-6 is back, um, not a home run and uh, uh, not as uh, dramatic as dexamethasone. JAK inhibitors, I've already mentioned this. Uh, baricitinib is really the only drug uh, that has been demonstrated, though other drugs have been in trial, uh, ruxolitinib, uh, um, uh, uh, and several others, as well as other kinase inhibitors. Um, they're approved for patients uh, with hypoxia in the hospital. Um, uh, how does this compare to dexamethasone? We do not know. There is a, a adaptive trial going on in the United States examining this. Should they be used in combination with dexamethasone? We don't know. That was, uh, um, uh, there are some patients who were in those uh, trials that uh, got both. Um, do other JAK inhibitors, uh, are they the same? We don't know because baricitinib uh, actually has some uh, uh, pharmacologic properties of inhibiting entry as well as inhibiting cytokines. And then finally, there are several um, monoclonal antibodies out. Uh, this is the uh, 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 Lilly uh, EUA, um, uh, 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 which is now, this is actually out of date because I made this uh, a couple weeks ago. There's a cocktail from Lilly, there's a cocktail from Regeneron, they're monoclonals. They are approved only for patients um, uh, early, non-hospitalized, and the data is actually quite fascinating. If you give them to people who have high viral loads, who do not make neutralizing antibody, they are quite effective. If you're already making neutralizing antibody, they don't do much. And we don't have biomarkers to guide us. I have already used these drugs on a number of my patients um, uh, who are at high risk. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I feel good to have this available to me. Um, that is a kind of the, the lay of the land here uh, of uh, managing patients as an outpatient. Take a couple quick questions, and then I'm going to turn this over to Kimmy. To a couple questions uh, related to uh, DMARDs and vaccines, and I'm wondering if we should maybe save some of that for the, the larger discussion, but in terms of immediate questions around the management of our patients, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on blood monitoring and uh, the decisions many of us have made for extending intervals in patients that we would have previously been monitoring quite frequently. Uh, oh, you, you mean uh, for the routine yeah, care? Like the routine methotrexate monitoring. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the guidelines, you know, for methotrexate is, as I seen them, and I've used this drug for decades and decades, you know, are, are, are kind of, of uh, you know, have Cautious. some flexibility to them. And <laughs> I, I, I would certainly not uh, put a patient into exposure, um, uh, 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 unnecessarily. So, you know, spanning it out, particularly people who have been on these for years and years, uh, 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 works for me, uh, you know, going from three months to four months. And uh, there are many people that uh, uh, 
it can go up to six months. So I, I feel good about that. Yeah, I think that's my, been my experience as well. Yes. But Don, if you want to have a look, uh, so just remind everyone, if you do have questions, if you can type them into the Q&A section, because uh, I don't think there's a facility to ask us directly. This is your way of asking us any questions around uh, management. There's a question here about where did the, where, why, why is there the, the, the reservation about holding a jack inhibitor upon exposure, but none of the other ones, uh, you know, deferentially. Uh, you know, uh, it, that does not come uh, based upon a lot of uh, any direct data, uh, as far as uh, I, I'm aware. Uh, I believe I already mentioned that, you know, these drugs uh, do have the potential to inhibit um, uh, type 1 and type 3 interferons, which we now know uh, uh, are delayed in their um, elaboration of, uh, by uh, a DNA immune response. So um, theoretically, you could delay it even further if you're on a JAK inhibitor. Um, does that translate to a bad outcome right now? We, we, don't, we, don't, really, uh, we don't really know. So I'm gonna I, I, I'm gonna save all the rest of the uh, uh, any questions uh, to um, uh, after your presentation. So very well. So um, many of you you may even have heard me speak uh, at either this forum or others around uh, what has rapidly started to take over my life the COVID nineteen uh, data registries. For those that know me, I've spent twenty years studying biologic safety. Uh, infections and otherwise, and this has suddenly been catapulted into becoming a COVID-19 epidemiologist. So I think we're a little bit further along now than we were a year ago, but really at the outset of the pandemic, it really wasn't known whether patients with RMDs or any specific treatment would increase the risk of having severe COVID-19. And as a response to this, many national and international COVID case databases were established very rapidly within weeks uh, to try to capture the outcomes of our patients and try to make sense uh, to help inform our management guidelines. So most of this work has fallen under the global banner of the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance. So this is a new group of uh, international rheumatologists who came together very rapidly following in the footsteps of our colleagues in gastroenterology to put together the way to capture data very quickly uh, in this pandemic. Now, I, I will talk a bit more about the actual uh, database itself, but the global banner falls under the GRA and established almost in parallel due to quite strict data protection laws around transferring data outside of Europe, uh, we established a parallel ULAR COVID-19 database. And these two databases are essentially identical. Data cases are captured by uh, physicians or other healthcare providers internationally and entered into either the COVID-19 GRA database or into the ULAR database. And it quickly transpired in Europe, where we're very fond of national databases, is that a number of countries were already doing this. For example, France, Italy, Portugal, uh, Germany, and others. And we've managed to collaborate uh, across all of these databases 
to feed all the cases observed in all of these databases into one single global case database. And this has allowed us um, very large sample sizes to be able to understand outcomes. So ideally, I as a rheumatologist or you would be aware of every patient that I treat that acquires COVID and I would enter them into this database, whether they're here asymptomatic but test positive, whether they have a mild illness and are treated at home, whether they're severe and go into hospital or whether they die. The reality is because in the UK where I work and many other countries, we had a complete lack of community testing for the first three or four months of this pandemic and a number of canceled appointments where we weren't even having any contact with our patients means that the majority of patients that we learned about early in this pandemic were those that were being admitted to our hospitals or dying. Although we would have some sight of patients who say rang us for advice about what to do with their DMARDs. But as a result, our databases don't have a complete capture. Instead, we, we do have this biased view of COVID within these databases with a high proportion of patients that are hospitalized or died lesser patients that are moderate and less, even less that are asymptomatic. So this is not the end of the world. What it means is there's things we can and can't do with this database. And I think it's important to recognize these biases so we don't overuse the database and come up with conclusions that are wrong, but equally we do use it where we can. So the database really can't be used to estimate the risk of having severe COVID if you have a rheumatic disease compared to if you don't, because the databases do not contain any patients that do not have an RMD. We also can't use it to look at the um, rate or proportion of patients overall that have RMD and get COVID who are hospitalized or who are dying. And therefore, it's because these patients don't represent all of the patients who have COVID. That being said, the data have proven to be very incredibly valuable for understanding the relative associations within patients that have RMDs and get COVID between different age groups, between different comorbidities, so those same risk factors we see in the general population. But more importantly, those factors that are largely absent from population data sets specific to our conditions, such as the level of disease activity and quite specific to the discussion we've already had, individual treatments. So this is a global database. These uh, are totals that were actually to the end of January, um, where we've had almost 11,000 cases now reported. You can see from this heat map uh, that there are cases from every continent. There's a few black holes, uh, unfortunately, where we're not seeing any data. Um, and we have European data now that's exceeding 6,000. And I know the global case database is uh, equally large. So I talked about that bias within this database, and here's our data cut from the 1st of February from Europe, where you can see that of the 5,000 patients, 32 countries, 48% of these patients were uh, those that had been hospitalized, and 11% uh, of the patients had died. And we know uh, from other population data sets that these are much higher than the general population and does represent a bias rather than uh, poor outcomes among our populations. So we've published a few papers from this and I'm gonna just talk about two of the uh, main uh, overall GRA uh, papers. Uh, and this first paper was, um, it was a good test of the data set and we actually did it very early on uh, because we were just so desperate for any information. 
And this first paper looked at those factors that were associated with hospitalization within this data set. And I say early on, it was the first 600 patients. When you consider now we have 11,000, we've come a very long way. But even at that point, we'd had fantastic participation, patients from 40 different countries. And one of the challenges that we faced very early on that we're starting to tackle better now is the fact that this is across inflammatory rheumatic diseases. So if you look down the list, all of these patients are being combined together. And we can have a big discussion about why that's probably not the best approach, but it was a fast approach. And in response to this public health crisis, this is the approach that was taken. So this first analysis, as I said, looked at the factors that were associated with being hospitalized. And I'm very careful to say the factors associated with rather than risk factors, because the nature of this data really does look at associations rather than cause. So we looked at drugs. We looked at a number of things. We looked at age. We looked at comorbidities, which I'm going to come back to in the next paper. But we also looked at drugs for the first time in our patients. Choosing a comparator population is really challenging. And we made the decision for this one because we were looking across all rheumatic diseases that we would choose patients not receiving any DMARD at all. What we found is that there was no difference in patients receiving conventional synthetic DMARDs. There was no significant difference among patients receiving a combination of conventional synthetic with biologics. But we saw this significant reduction in hospitalization among patients that were receiving biologics. And I can say, for the most part, this was overwhelmingly TNF inhibitors in this analysis. I'm going to also talk a little bit more later on around the glucocorticoids. And Len picked up on this already, where when we look at glucocorticoids, we saw higher rates of hospitalization among patients who were receiving high doses, here defined as over 10 milligrams a day of prednisone equivalent. And we showed, like everyone else, that hydroxychloroquine had no association with hospitalization. So as I've said, really, we should be very careful not to make causal inference conclusions around these data. And one of the things I took as a challenge is what our choice of comparator was. And here we chose no DMARD. So this is a tricky group of patients because patients receiving no DMARD either have very mild disease or they often have the opposite. They have a number of serious contraindications to being on a DMARD. And as a result, this group is a complex group whose risk may be lower or greater than other drugs. But when we did that, as I said, the risk for the group taking biologics was reduced. And this got a lot of press attention that TNF inhibitors in particular are protective. And I remember that I said that this really shouldn't be used to compare patients receiving RMD compared to those not receiving RMD. And one of the things to consider, now that you shouldn't do this, anyone that does odds ratios knows that this isn't the way to present them. But we didn't take into account the general population. So we weren't able to say that at this time, and to be fair, using this data, we can't say at any time whether all of these patients still have a higher risk compared to patients that don't have either the RMD or the need for these treatments at all. So that was our first paper, and it was kind of getting our feet wet looking at these data. 
And towards the end of the summer, we uh, had close to 4,000 patients and we felt this now was a good opportunity to start to really dig into these data more. And in particular, to start to look, if we can, within specific diseases and compare specific biologics uh, in particular. And again, a great uh, global collaborative effort. So this time we had 3,729 cases. And again, we have higher uh, mortality uh, with 10.5% having died. Again, we have the challenge of all of these different diagnoses being within the same data set. So we did perform an analysis where we looked at everyone, but we also divided it, uh, sorry, stratified the analysis by groups, including inflammatory joint disease. I'll show you data limited to rheumatoid arthritis. Um, due to the widespread and the low numbers in some of these, we still combined connected tissue diseases, and then we have this other group. And we also looked at uh, a number of medications and we looked at these actually by target rather than grouping them with the exception as we grouped JAKs and we grouped our immunosuppressives. So this was very challenging analysis to do. And one of the most challenging analysis was the fact that this was not only uh, analysis across uh, conditions and drugs, it was also the largest analysis in terms of international patients that I think has been ever carried out. And the mortality rates that we saw in this database varied widely. So I live and work in the UK. I don't think we have 20% uh, mortality, but at the time of recording into this database, these were the patients we were seeing. Um, appreciate if you look at statistics, it's not great in the UK, but it's not that bad. Um, we also had lots of patients from the US that say had a much low, overall they had lower mortality rates. In some way we needed to uh, analyze all of these together. And you can see that we, we considered this carefully and took a number of approaches because we didn't want this to be a false explanation for any differences we saw. So what did we find? Well, first of all, we uh, looked at those factors that we see in the general population, such as age, um, you can see here, um, just to orient you on the first time, uh, this indicates an increased odds ratio on this side of the graph, and the black is all patients, red is inflammatory joint disease, yellow is RA specifically, and blue is the connective tissue disease group. So like the general population, we see this uh, marked association with death associated with age. Uh, we did see uh, a pattern with increasing risk in men and with smokers, although this was not as strong here. However, consistently across all disease categories, we saw that those patients that at the time they acquired COVID who had moderate to high disease activity compared to those that were in low disease activity or remission, this was a strong uh, association with death. Um, and so Len's already uh, commented on this, that bringing patients' disease under control should remain our priority throughout this pandemic. We also looked at uh, comorbidities. Interestingly, when we looked at either hypertension alone or cardiovascular disease alone, they uh, did not have a strong association with death, but in patients that had multimorbidity, we did see this. We saw an association with lung disease, uh, the chronic kidney disease was particularly marked among patients that had connected tissue disease. And uh, 
probably due to low numbers, you can see here our confidence bands around diabetes are more limited, um, but the odds ratios are increased. We had the opportunity to look between therapies. Now the reference here is rheumatoid arthritis. And you can see here that we really didn't have the evidence to make any conclusions that any one can, uh, rheumatic disease had higher or lower death rates compared to another. Right, so here's the money slide that everyone uh, has wants to see and has been talking about. So you remember with the previous analysis, we looked at no DMARD as our comparator and we decided this time to use an active comparator and we chose methotrexate. It's not the perfect comparator for every condition, um, but it was the one that was most consistently used in all groups across the whole data set. And interestingly, um, now you can see that our no DMARD group has an increased risk of mortality. The first thing to notice is compared to methotrexate, the majority of DMARDs, uh, biologics, conventional synthetics, did not have any difference in mortality rates compared to uh, methotrexate. However, there's some outliers here. So the first is rituximab. So consistently uh, in patients with inflammatory joint disease, primarily rheumatoid arthritis, and those receiving this for connective tissue disease, you can see here that there was much higher odds of being dead than those that were not. Now, one might argue this doesn't come as a complete surprise based on how we know rituximab works uh, and our response to infections. Equally, these are patients that probably have some of the more severe of these conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, tend to be multiple biologic failures to be on rituximab um, and similarly are connected tissue disease rituximab are also those that are more severe. But even after taking into account current disease activity, you can see that this risk is high. We also found that there was an increased odds of being dead from COVID if you were on an immunosuppressive drug. So this, these drugs weren't commonly used in our joint disease group, but you can see here among the connective tissue disease, um, mortality was higher. Then we come to sulfasalazine. So this was the surprise of the day for um, all of us. And we saw that within the all inflammatory joint disease, which here of course includes psoriatic arthritis and then when limited to RA alone, compared to methotrexate, we saw an increased risk, um, increased mortality within the group that was receiving sulfasalazine. So this received a lot of attention and as an epidemiologist, I can't ever say that there's a direct causal link with observations. So it's either real or it's not. So it shouldn't be ignored, but it should be considered. So is it real? Well, interestingly, the, a similar data set in patients with had inflammatory bowel disease, when looking very early on at death, found the related drug mesalazine also to be associated with an increased um, mortality. We looked to see whether this was due to the fact that maybe patients with sulfasalazine were taking another drug in combination and it was the combination of therapies. But in fact, this association was there whether patients were taking sulfasalazine as monotherapy or as combination therapy. And of course, sulfasalazine is not a, a drug that does nothing. It's an immune modulator. Uh, although interestingly, I'm not an immunologist, but we are aware of animal models where some of our drugs have potential benefit. And equally, we've seen that whole argument right through the COVID pandemic. Equally, it's an artifact. 
and it may be an artifact because in our stratified analysis, the association disappeared in people that didn't smoke. It was only present in smokers. It wasn't significant in complete case analysis, meaning that our power here was actually just on the edge of being able to look at this, although I note the actual point estimate was similar. We also had a lot of discussion about who in the heck is using sulfasalazine, and I can tell you in the UK, we use a lot of sulfasalazine, and this probably relates to the NICE guidance that we have about access to biologics, where patients have to have had two DMARDs, not one, before they can be considered, and sulfasalazine in many cases is the DMARD of choice here, and we also had a very high fatality rate among the UK population. We also know that sulfasalazine outside of the UK is often reserved for patients that have certain pulmonary diseases, particularly interstitial lung disease, perhaps, and it may be that there are some unmeasured confounders that are not yet adjusted away. This other drug that I want to talk about is steroids, and I don't treat a lot of patients with over 10 milligrams of prednisolone on a chronic basis unless their disease activity is very high. So we've recently looked at whether the death associated with higher doses of steroids can actually be dissected away from disease activity. So these are results. This is actually just published now, looking at a stratified analysis, looking at interaction between disease activity and steroids, and you can actually see here that when we look at patients in remission who were on higher doses of steroids, the risk of being dead is actually much lower compared to those that were in moderate to high disease activity, and you can see here that even patients on no steroids now had an increased risk of being in the death group, and this persisted right through from low dose up to high dose. So the steroids here, of course, this is important to consider, but disease activity, I think, is even more important to consider. So what does all this tell us? Well, overall, the factors associated with hospitalization or death among patients with RMDs in our database look to be similar to those with RMDs. So the general population advice that patients receive holds for our patients as well. And also that few therapies overall are associated with the higher odds of death compared to methotrexate, although for some of these, the role of patient-related factors versus disease activity versus the drug itself remains unclear. And the message that I think can't be said enough is we must still continue to manage our patients to the best that we can and bring their disease activity under control, because high disease activity is a very strong association. And if it means that we need to use steroids or others to control this, this is what we should do. So finally, what's next for the Global Rheumatology Alliance? Well, we've seen now one paper coming out on RA, and there will be some more. We're going to see some more disease-specific analyses. And we're also, we've combined forces with the gastroenterologists and the dermatologists, and we've got some combined analyses ongoing looking at biologics more closely, particularly those less common exposures, as well as plans to combine forces to look at this issue with sulfasalazine closer. So on that, I'll acknowledge this huge global effort and happy to take some questions. Well, that was great. Who are you combining forces with in IBD? 
So you're going to ask me for all their names and they're going to slip my mind. No, is it a, is it a, I mean, like secure IBD database or? Oh, I apologize. Yeah, yeah. So secure IBD, which is also run uh, out of UCSF and the So Protect, which is uh, run uh, out of King's College London. Uh, and they, they, they all, we all started around the same time and. Uh, yeah, no, I've been. Uh... A lot of common data. I was, uh, I, I've been interacting with uh, Secure IBD out of Mount Sinai, and they've been very helpful. And hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, they, you know, that self-salazine thing, uh, just, just as an aside, I mean, it, it is what it is. Uh, but uh, Randy Crone uh, 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 showed me something very interesting that um, sent me a paper from like 30 years old that, uh, in children with um, JIA, that there are all these anecdotes of using sulfasalazine and then the children converting into a hyperinflammatory syndrome. Yeah. And he said, you know, we never knew what that meant and it may not mean anything, but you know, it's a, it's a hypothesis generating observation that, you know, it, to me, it's, it's, well, first of all, I, I don't treat anybody with sulfasalazine virtually at all anymore. Yeah, so it wouldn't, be hard, wouldn't be hard to stop. So let me, uh, uh, we have some questions here, but the, I, I, I'm going to kind of blend this into uh, the, the discussion. Um, the rituximab thing, you know, we, we find this interesting and, you know, in, it may be confounded because these are bad patients. And, you know, we don't really understand, I mean, we don't understand the mechanism of action. I mean, uh, rituximab is associated with increase in serious infections across all indications whenever you use it. Uh, but, you know, the vast majority of people have normal immunoglobulin levels. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, yet at the same time, and we have a paper that's currently undergoing review. We did a scoping review of humoral immunodeficiency both acquired and uh, genetic and COVID outcomes. And uh, the data in multiple sclerosis is just the same thing. Uh, and no matter, and several of them are, are really well done, you know, multivariant analysis, et cetera. So I, 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 I'm th I think that it's uh, the real deal. And those few cases that we, I mean, you mentioned there's been a few case reports. I'm aware of even a patient locally in our own hospitals the patients that seem to have the persistent, long, non-cleared COVID are often patients that have received rituximab for either the lymphoma or their rheumatic disease. So yeah, I mean, we're just you know we're gonna we're gonna be in alignment on this soon when we start looking at vaccine response and people undergoing um, you know uh, B cell depletion therapies, which yeah. and we really don't know what the you know, what we're going to find, we have a good idea what we're going to find, but, uh, you know, yeah. we need to, uh, uh, we need to do that. So let me ask you a 30,000 foot view. So, uh, I mean, the, these national databases are powerful because of their size, but they're limited because of all the, all the things that you mentioned in, in terms of their design and data acquisition. So how do you put, how do you align as an epidemiologist uh, some of the more important um, epidemiologic studies that have come from, you know, large 
single center or or healthcare systems that are closed that have allowed people to, you know, capture capture the denominator like uh, you know the Boston studies and some of the New York studies and now I'm seeing in number of European studies where you can actually uh, bypass some of the weaknesses of the yeah. reporting bias kind of studies. So how, what's in alignment and what's not in alignment? So, um, yeah, I run one of those studies myself in the UK. Uh, so most, the real issue we have seen with the local, small or national, even some of the national uh, databases is power. So they really have been largely descriptive studies, which have been mostly reassuring that most of our DMARDs don't sow any association, but you know, some of these are, are very, very small. The, the issue, uh, so I think these are the way of the future and you know, we will see these data emerge from these large databases. Um, you know, in the UK, we have the large Open Safely Network, which is, you know, a third of the British population. And with COVID status, with the ability to perhaps get um, biologic data into there. And I think, you know, when you consider the proportion of the population that's actually had COVID and then what proportion of those have a rheumatic disease, you do need massive populations. So I think these data, they will come. Uh, and I think they'll come robustly and they will give us a much more accurate picture on risk because the denominators will be much more representative. The reason this wasn't done initially is because the speed to actually move these large national data sets and to get the data into them at the size we need was just too slow. Uh, and even now, a year later, we still don't have those types of databases fully ready for us to analyze this. So. I'm optimistic they may show some of the same picture. Some of them will be better than what we have because they're disease specific and they're going to have much more uh, covariate data to really understand drug risk versus disease risk. Yes. All right, so the, the, uh, a question by Chris uh, here asked about commercial claims databases. And I think that's in alignment with yeah. what you're discussing. So I think so that thing that's... Asks, though, is, so, so this is a real problem that we have with observational large data sets is there's what we think happened and then there's what really happened. So the, the question posed is whether um, we have a database that can give us an answer about whether it's better to continue or discontinue DMARDs, for example, at the time a patient acquires COVID. And to be fair, these data are largely invisible to observational researchers because that granularity of data is often missed. Patients are making these decisions at home on their own and they do not get picked up in any database at all. Yeah. Really, you know, I, to do that, you need clinical trial level data, which we just won't ever have. Do you feel um, kind of teleologically, I'm not asking you to speak on the basis of any single study. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really asking you for your gut feeling on um, the, the integration of all of these. Do you think that there is, uh, that, that the question of whether being on uh, a targeted therapy uh, at time of acquisition of um, the infection 
Um, do you think it's still a, a, a viable question whether one or more targeted therapies could potentially be protective? I mean, you know, these guidelines, you know, as I say, they give a wink, wink, nod, nod to IL-6 inhibitors for some reason. Um, do, do you think that this is still a viable question? I think if there was a strong association, we would have seen it, even with the limited data that we had, if the strength, if the signal was strong enough. You know, our data set isn't perfect. There's things we can't adjust for. It misses patients, but it is not devoid of patients across the entire spectrum of disease. And I think we would have seen, we would have seen that signal, regardless of who the comparator was. Yeah, I do too. So there's a question here. Uh, so in the, in the disease activity, uh, poor outcomes correlation, did you control for glucocorticoid use or could that have confounded this? Yeah, so in the first analysis, we, we adjusted for disease. So each of the uh, odds ratios I showed are adjusted for everything else in the analysis, much like your kind of kitchen sink approach to doing a multivariable analysis. But what we have subsequently done, and it was the last slide that I shared where we looked for whether there was an interaction. So how correlated and how can we disentangle this question? And what we found is disease activity appears to be one of the stronger predictors because we saw high mortality among those with high disease activity independent of steroid dose. And we did not see that in patients even on higher doses of steroids whose disease was controlled. So I think, my message now to all of my patients uh, and my colleagues is we must work to bring the patient's disease under control. And if that means that we have to use steroids, that's what we have to do. Um, I hear you. So um, I'm going to ask you a tough question. So the ULAR has created a vaccine adverse events reporting system. And, and the and the room COVID Global Alliance has not. That's a very tough question. So it is true that ULAR has developed the COVAX uh, database. I think. So first of all, let me just tell you about this database. The concept of the database as proposed by ULAR is for patients, for rheumatologists who are aware that their patients have had a vaccine, that they would enter them onto the database. Ideally, we would want every patient entered into a database that has had a vaccine. That's challenging. All of my patients over the age of 70 in the UK yeah. have had their vaccine. <laughs> it's the whole world, ultimately, hopefully. I think this database should be viewed as something that may generate signals that can be explored in larger, more complete databases. So these exist. Unfortunately, the clinical trials, as you and everyone else on this call are well aware, specifically excluded our patients from the trials. So going into vaccine, we were, we had no data on COVID vaccine, but we have a vaccine and we have patients that are potentially at risk that need to be vaccinated. Um, so our advice from ULAR, our advice at the British Society for Rheumatology is that our patients should be vaccinated. 
um, we are interested into whether vaccines in our patients will not give the uh, have the level of effectiveness so they will develop COVID despite having the vaccine even within the variants that we have. Um, there's always a concern whether vaccines can trigger autoimmune diseases. Um, in patients that don't have rheumatic diseases, this has not really been observed significantly in the clinical trials. The um, risk of any observational database, even like the one that I've just presented, is that the data coming out of it can become misconstrued. So for example, you could interpret the data that I've just shown you to say 50% of all patients with RMDs are admitted to hospital and 10 to 20% die, particularly in the UK. And we know that's not the case. So I think we should use the COVAX data to generate signals and questions that I think we could then take forward into more robust databases. And the best databases for these are gonna be those from those countries um, or claims databases where we can either link our big databases together such as in the UK with the National Immunization Database, claims databases should have this. The Scandinavians will without a doubt have this. And I think then with a complete denominator, we'll be able to uh, answer. And what this the COVAX database may do is say, this is a question that you should pose to these other databases. I, I, I agree with that 100%. It's going to be rocky going for a while and how to interpret these uh, data coming out. Uh, there's a couple questions about rituximab and giving vaccines and, you know, they're a vulnerable population and should we wait? And this is really a work in progress. We don't understand the vaccine response um, in patients getting iatrogenic B-cell depletion. We do know that they can respond with a cell-mediated immune response to things like recombinant um, uh, zoster vaccine. And we're hopeful that uh, they will with um, uh, the, the current uh, array of uh, COVID vaccines. Uh, but, you know, expecting to get a humoral immune deficiency within 120 days of rituximab is asymptotically approaching zero. Uh, so um, I, I think for my patients, I'm trying to look for that window of delay uh, where naive B cells may be coming back but uh, I don't feel great about it uh, one way or the other. Tough questions, uh, stick with us. I mean, that was fabulous and very fun doing this with you. I um, uh, learned a lot and uh, look forward to uh, uh, hearing more of this uh, incredible effort, which uh, we wholeheartedly support and enroll our patients in. And everyone listening here, get, get down to business. It takes like five minutes to put a patient in. Indeed. Uh, so, um, it's easy. So with that, I'm going to kind of wrap this up and remind you that, uh, uh, first of all, thank you for joining us. Uh, please fill out that evaluation form, gives us some feedback, and uh, this is going to be archived. And then we'll have another, we have another um, webinar coming up with uh, um, some, two of my really good friends, uh, Kevin Winthrop and Xavier Mariette, and I'm gonna, really going to make these guys uh, answer the tough questions um, on uh, all these uh, crazy clinical trials going on. So thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to seeing you back.